Mr. Rodney. What's up, Keith? How you doing, buddy? I'm doing really well. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have any today, but I'm a big fan of Lion's Mane Mushroom. Mm-hmm. I've talked about mushrooms in the past. You've me talked about shrooms Me and shrooming. Before. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not, not, not the, hallucinogenic not shrooming. Not hallucinogenic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, the, the culinary, the, the wild variety that is uh, sometimes tasty, but has a lot of cool, of good, <laughs> cool effects, good effects on yeah. <laughs> nutrition, from a nutritional standpoint. Nutritional shrooming. That's what I'm doing. Oh, that's that's a good uh, that's a good marketing term. You should. I should trade coin that and start a yeah, shroom company. Yeah. <laughs> Lion's mane, though. Lion's mane is one that. So I don't drink coffee. I don't do stimulants or uppers. However, it is on the list of nootropics. See nootropic stick yeah. shtick because we've talked about those before. We have. Coffee's on that list, but this is a uh, more actually caffeine's pretty natural. Those beans are real natural. Yeah. But uh, grow. Lion's mane has a really cool like when i'm feeling tired or if i need to focus um i'll pop a little bit of that into my tea or even into my like into a sparkling water with some apple cider vinegar and some kombucha and then it's just like a brain food drink for me like i just firing hmm. like, what do you have i'm like lion's mane mm. man i just can't keep up <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to, or welcome back to, More In Common. This is our social experiment. See, everyone has a story that can help us learn from one another. And we bring people into this safe space that we have learned to create so we can learn about their stories and get into difficult topics that challenge us in conversation and ultimately how we think. And we have a lot of these conversations. And we're seeing a lot of similar threads through all of them. So what we're doing is breaking down these conversations to create a set of tools and a map that'll help you become a conversation boss so that you can be a catalyst for conversation in your day-to-day life. Check out our website, www.moreincommonpod.com. That's the place to go to find all things More In Common. Sign up for our newsletter. You can see our episodes, everything. Uh, Also, if uh, you're feeling, feeling like sharing and sharing is caring, send it out to some friends some family we appreciate you and um so we're we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about our last episode with felix how'd you feel about that Keith? you know it it was it was fun it was different and um i just i gotta say i the way she looks at the world she obviously coming into it with the whole idea of cultural accessibility for health and wellness and making that impact in underserved communities for me is just something I've never talked about or even thought about, quite frankly. You know, I kind of take for granted that I can go to Whole Foods and feed feed my family healthy, organic foods, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then even more so, and I think this one is just, it's so refreshing in a way, uh, just how she openly shares about her motherhood, her motherhood shame and uh, how so many personal ambitions she had before coming a mom and ultimately now she's a stay-at-home mom how she navigates that how she manages that how she openly understands it and and i think it's such a great opportunity to help others i'm sure it's not an isolated incident with with felix um how about you man i like that first one Uh, i have thought about it but her saying that she's a unicorn in that space you know it kind of highlights the 
need for representation and the, the, the importance of representation even. Yeah, for sure. And then her talking about the conversation with her son, her white presenting son, which, um, you know, it's just, it's a heartbreaking conversation. It's a heartbreaking story to hear that you even have to have that conversation. But her, her coaching, her guidance to him about how to, or, or that it is his responsibility to take care of his black presenting friends because the way that they're perceived in situations and the things he can get away with and do is different than what they can. And A, the awareness to do that and the, the feeling, the, the responsibility she has to do it. And then the, the message she said, you know, to, to uh, white parents in general, uh, the guidance for their children and how to coach them. It, it's definitely a unique and different message I had never heard of. Before. I never heard it. Yeah. I never really heard a message that was that concise and yeah. very clear on like, hey, here's something tangible you can do to help your kids help their black friends. Totally. So, yeah, I thought it was uh, it was just it was a really good episode. I really enjoyed the conversation. And um, who do we have this week? Well, we have Tina McGuff, straight from Scotland. Um, Scotland. She is. She is a best-selling author. Um, her book is called Seconds to Snap, which I have had the chance to read since our interview, and it is outstanding and very detailed. Um, her, it, it, it's ultimately about her journey as a teenager through young adulthood, uh, living with and managing anorexia to full recovery in a very half, healthy and happy life. Um, her years of lived experience, as well as working alongside psychologists, eating disorder and mental health charities and supporting families through the hell of these very complex illnesses has given her a huge amount of insight and practical information to bring to people and help others navigate these complexities. She is a regular guest on national TV, radio, newspaper, um, and all to start those important conversations with people across the world in schools, universities, private hospitals, and workplaces. And, of course, we do have to give a special thank you to the Dover family. Bracia Dover, you had a chance to meet her last year. And you will have a chance to meet her father uh, later this year. Uh, but they put us together. They got us in touch. And we're super grateful to have met Tina. And she wants to send a special thank you to Brenda Chapman and Kevin Lima for believing in, believing in her and, and to, to bring her story to life on the big screen. So what did we talk about? We got into that stigma around mental illness, talked about her growing up in Scotland and South Africa, so she lived around apartheid a little bit. Uh, we, we touched on that. We talk into her story, and I'll just leave it at that. We go into her story, and there's so much there. Um, I, I would say that you know, one of my big observations from the conversation was her clarification around uh, mental health and mental illness. Yeah. And I've never, I've strangely enough, I've never heard somebody say talk, just point out the difference. Yeah, no, it was good. Yeah, and it was, and it's concise and clear. Yeah, right. Um, what about you? You got any any tips you want to pull out of it? You know, for 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 two, one from her and one from us. Right, um, she does a really, really, really good job, not assuming anything about our understanding about her perspective and where she is. She actually asks a lot of clarifying conversations when she refers to 
a stone as a form of measurement. And she, she clarifies that. Um, and, and a pen pals um, ecosystem that, that's available to her in Scotland. And she, she asks us. And, and I just think that's such a critical component of conversation is don't, don't assume someone else knows what you're talking about. And sometimes it's important to make sure that they do understand. And then from our perspective, I mean, she came back to us with some of the most uh, gracious feedback and the idea that she just felt safe and comfortable talking talking to us about her story. And it's such a critical component, the idea of creating a safe space to have these these points of discussion and really giving people that, that feeling of, of welcomeness in, into the dialogue without judgment, right? So uh, it's, it's sprinkled uh, throughout, obviously, those two, but, but have a listen for them and, and really, really enjoy this episode. library and I started researching eating eating problems, eating things and, and this book came up saying anorexia and I started reading it and I immediately identified that I had every single thing that this girl had in this book um, but the funny thing was she had lost like three stone or something in this book and I thought, and all I thought was, is that all? Oh my god I can do this stand on my head you know, this is going to be so easy for me this is the easiest and best thing I've ever done. I thought it was my new best friend. It, it gave me this warmth and protection and control almost. What about the calories you really can't control, like in the air, for example? So say there's millions of calories in the air, and I started to pant to try and think that by it would burn off more energy and the, the oxygen would ca- laden with calories would burn off I mean it was ridiculous and at that moment I really thought this is ridiculous you know I knew but I didn't care I didn't care I just cared so little about myself that I couldn't have given a shit but I knew I was deeply unwell um, so that was anyway so I turned 16 in the August and by the December I was Asking. Thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Um, so right, right out of the gate, before we get into you know your background, you know one of the things that's really important to you is breaking down the stigma of mental health, um, and we'll get into that. But I'm curious from your perspective, given that you're involved in it all all the time, what do you think still contributes to the stigma of mental health? Great question, actually, because there's so many things that contributes to this. Um, and it's, I think it's lack of education, I wouldn't say, and sometimes ignorance in some people's um, minds. They, they assume, for example, with anorexia, which is a mental illness, that it's not a mental illness. That's one of the stigmas around that immediately. They think it's just someone who doesn't want to eat or they're just super skinny or, you know, they look like a skeleton. Immediately, that's a misinformation because anorexia 
is under the is under the um, umbrella of an eating disorder, and it's a very very complex mental illness that can it's the highest mortality rate in fact of all. Mm. In fact, and even here in the UK, it kills more people per year, uh, physically, medically, and via suicide because of the condition than diabetes, for example. So, but a lot of people don't know that. You know, I mean, obviously, right, right off the bat, there, Rod, yeah. you didn't know that. So it's, it's one of these things, and people just think, oh, it's you know, no one really knows about that. It's often not really talked about because people are often scared as well to ask the questions and. You know, they're scared almost how do they deal with the answer or... And also a lot of times, I know from my experience with, with other people, they're scared to say to someone who they know is struggling, how are you, in case they cry, for example. And then they don't know how to, to, to deal with that situation. So it's just, if you give people the power to deal with that situation in an effective way, they'll feel so much more confident to have those conversations and not worry. Because... At the end of the day, right, we're all human, we all have feelings, and sometimes just talking is so much more helpful than anything else. Wow. And what do you say to someone, because, you know, I hear this often, say to someone, just pick yourself up, go, get after the day, like, you know. <laughs> Give yourself a shake. Yeah, like, <laughs> make it happen, like, what, yeah. what's your problem? Because it's, it's a honest response that a lot of people have because they don't understand it so i'm yeah. curious like how do you respond to that how do you help someone see that it's so there's a difference between this is the thing what causes some confusion everybody has mental health okay like your oral health your you know your food health whatever health it's all one it's all part of you however there's a massive difference between mental ill health and the complexities that become. So if you say, for example, if you have um, a, um, a little bit of, you know, you're not feeling 100%, you're a little bit down, you're a little bit under the weather, and you're not clinically depressed, yeah, of course, if, if my husband said to me that day, come on, Tina, you know, you can go out, sit, let's go, give yourself a shake, blah, blah, blah. I could understand that because he's right. I could probably go outside, have a brisk walk, feel a hundred times better. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's without medication and that kind of thing. However, if you said that to someone who's lying in their bed for two months, uh, trying to set themselves on fire because they're so depressed and, and stuck in this rut and hate themselves and can't eat or drink or sleep. If you said that to someone, literally it's the most awful thing you could say. And it comes from a place of, they're just trying to be helpful, I think, but they really don't understand the complexity. So I think breaking down the barriers of, of understanding the complexity of that massive between mental health and mental illness is, is important. So people know, mm. you know, what's the point? I would never say that to someone because it's just ridiculous, you know. So I think that would be the answer to that. Yeah. Um, I think, and we'll probably go into that a little bit more. I think I have some questions, but you're, um, I, I kind of want to get into background a little bit and also point out that you're, you're in Dundee, Scotland, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So a we're, long way away, long way away. Uh, we're on a little bit <laughs> of it. Us, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To you. I guess yeah. you're pretty yeah. local for you, <laughs> but, um, so, so tell us a little bit about your background. Like you, you have a very 
um, a very important story. Um, I want to say fascinating, but that's not, I don't think that, that encapsulates it. It's, it's an important story. And, and first of all, thank you for sharing it. And, um, and before we get into the meat of it, like, tell us a little bit about growing up in Scotland. So I was here in Dundee until I was on my sixth birthday, actually. And then my mom's brother lived in Africa in South Africa, Pretoria. And he was doing great over there. So he had said to mom, you know, you should bring your kids over here. It's a great life. It's very warm and it's hot and it's lovely. And the employment was fantastic. Whereas here in Scotland at that time, it wasn't great. You know, there was a lot of unemployment and they were having some issues. Mom and dad weren't having the great greatest of, of times. They thought this, this um, amazing outdoor lifestyle where it's sunny all the time would be amazing for us. So that's where we went. Um, and it was amazing. I mean, my goodness, I, I, I had the best time ever. I thought I was having the best time because I, didn't, I wasn't aware of any issues in the background. Mom and dad kind of kept us very ignorant to their problems. Mm. But it was a beautiful country. I don't know if any of you guys have been to Africa, but it's, oh my goodness, Not it's yet. stunning. Oh, it's stunning. So we, we were in Pretoria and we traveled often to Durban and, and uh, Kruger National Park and things like that. It was amazing. We ran about bare feet. I spoke fluent Afrikaans, which I can't anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> and we had just an amazing life. My my youngest sibling was born there. And then my dad and mum were homesick and also didn't like a lot of what was going on with the troubles over there. So they decided that they would come back to Scotland when in my early teens. And yeah, we were that's what kinda happened. So my real, early real childhood quick, was when you say troubles over there, what are you referring to? The apartheid. Okay. They uh, hated oh my goodness. You know, we weren't used you, to that and it was just not good at all. Did you, you know, not to not to divert your direction, but did you witness it at such an young age yeah, or is that one yeah. of them you did witness it? Yeah. And it's something we weren't we didn't like and my parents didn't couldn't get used to they didn't appreciate it at all for example you know they you know you had to like when we arrived everybody had people you know people working with now we weren't they weren't even well off at all my mom and dad like my dad worked for a company called Discord, which was just um like a painter and decorator and mom worked in a in a like a superstore on a max factor counter and but you always had someone who cleaned the house and things like that. And this lady was called Elizabeth, and she was lovely, and we got on fantastic with her because she looked after us all the time. So one day I can't remember this. Mum had obviously told me this uh, lately, and she was telling me that she got a, a knock at the door one evening from the police, and she she brought them in and they said to her, "We've we've had a report that you've had Elizabeth sitting at your table." Um, so if you ever have Elizabeth sitting at your table again, we will, you know, we, you'll be fined and this will happen and this will happen. Mm -hmm. And my mom was like, yep. how dare you threaten me? This is ridiculous. This is wow. a human being, you know, my God. And this is, they were not, I mean, there's Scottish people from here. We don't, that's just not in our life. But yeah, it's horrible. Like people shouldn't live like that. And we, that's not the way we wanted to live so that was one of the big reasons why we left yeah. um to come back to scotland because there's, there's none of that you know we didn't see any of that and it was not something we were comfortable with well my parents didn't want us to be raised like that anyway um 
So yeah, that's the reason why we came back to Dundee. Makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. You were in your early teens at that point. Yes. So everything then was fine. You know, we had, we thought my mom and dad had a great relationship. We didn't hear any arguing. Everything was, we were very naive, I would say, as kids. Um, I think, I mean, often people ask me this question. Do you think it's because we were so ignorant, the reactions we had to the circumstances happened? And I don't know the answer, however, but I think it might have prepared us a little better because what happened was, so we were kind of just plodding along. None of us had any problems, right? We didn't have, we didn't have any self-esteem issues. I didn't think of my body in any negative way. It never, we didn't have money to put up my Vogue magazines or things like that. So none of these things were in our heads. I didn't know what mental illness was. I'm very ignorant to these things. Remember, we didn't have the internet either or things like that in, in the 80s, um, the late 80s. So what happened was we were going along great. Mum and Dad got this nice little house. I was at school. We were all at school. Everything seemed to be going fine. And then there was this one evening, um, I got woken up by my neighbour. And the fact that during the night, my neighbour, who's a male, was tapping me on the shoulder as a 13-year-old girl was bizarre. And he said to me, Tina, there's been an accident. You need to come with us. And of course, I was really scared. And I got my little sisters who were sleeping with me. I started to go down the stairs and the house was full of police officers. And um, yeah, it was really a terrifying moment because we didn't know what was going on. And I felt all this anxiety that I never felt. And this is the moment our life kind of fell apart. In fact, the book was nearly called The Tap on the Shoulder because that's the moment my life changed. Mm -hmm. Our lives changed. And it, um, we didn't find out for a few days. We got taken away to this neighbor's house. And it turned out that my dad, unbeknown to us or anything, he had been not a very good dad or a very good husband, actually. And he had been having affairs and not paying the bills. And he, he had one of my sisters hiding all the mail that was coming in. So my mom never knew anything. So suddenly she was when she found out behind the scenes about all these things that was going on, like she was about to have the house repossessed, her business was repossessed. He was, you know going out with other women that she had no idea about. She just flipped. She flipped out and um, so she attacked him with a knife. So she was taken to jail and he was taken to hospital. So it was a horrible time. So our lives just became like from one perfect moment, it felt like, to this very extreme time where we ended up with, you know, no home. We had no money for food. Literally, I don't know about in the States, but here you have, um, like, you need to put money to get electric on a, and a stick or a card, and you put it in. It's like a prepaid thing. We often wouldn't even have money for that, so we'd sit in the dark. Um, my dad was absent completely from our lives. He would tell us he'd meet us, and he'd never turn up. And it was devastating. You know, we had a, we didn't know what to do. So we ended up, my mom ended up, a de very different person. I mean, she used to be such a, you know, a beautiful, strong, lovely lady. And she, I mean, she was even offered a contract modeling L'Oreal. You know, she was, she was a beautiful woman. And she became this shadow of herself where she couldn't communicate. She'd sleep all the time. 
she couldn't speak to us. We became like almost feral kids, you know. We just ended up going out, doing crazy things. I couldn't cope mentally. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand what my thoughts were. But I knew I was terrified and I felt a huge responsibility for my siblings. And I felt I wasn't protecting them enough. So what happened was I... um. We didn't have money for food and things, so I would rake the bins. And you know, I don't know about there, but you can get money back on bottles. And you, oh, yeah. you trade them yeah. in. Yeah. So I would kind of get money like that, and I would go to the chip shop. <coughs> Excuse me. I would go to the chip shop with um, like big bags of bottles to try and get some food for the girls. And it was just horrible. And Are you the oldest? Then, mm-hmm, I'm the oldest of uh, four. Um, four. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. All girls? Yeah, all girls. And then you feel so inferior as a person because, you know, your clothes are unkempt, your hair's... Like, we didn't even have shampoo. We used to just use... Like, if we had a little bar of soap, we'd try and... I've all got long hair, so you can imagine the state our hair were in. We couldn't, we couldn't wash properly. We had no hot water. So it was a dire situation. And we went from, like, this very idyllic, what we thought was this lovely, happy home to this what the hell's happened we can't even eat we're not we're sitting in the dark we can't wash and so it was a horrible horrible time and none of us knew what to do and this is where the problems began to happen because like most kids if you don't have a coping mechanism you just turn to something else to escape so i started drinking um smoking cannabis just doing anything i could you know solvent abuse i would hang about parks on my own at night, um, almost hoping for myself to die so that I didn't have to deal with things. It was like a, I'm almost vicariously hoping to relinquish the the um, responsibility because I didn't know how to cope with protecting my sisters. And in fact, I phoned an orphanage here when I was a teenager and I begged them to take us in because I thought if they take us in an orphanage now, We'll be together, whereas if the social services here, how bad our lives are, they'll separate us all and it'll be my fault for telling. So these were the kind of things I was thinking and I hated, hated everything. So what I did was I, like I had really long hair like this and I just shaved it all off one day and I started getting loads of piercings and I got tons and tons of makeup and I got people to tattoo on my arms and here and on my chest and I mean I really like went from one very naive little girl to this this mess of a person you know I just I I can't explain apart from I just hoped it would all end and I would probably die and no one would give a shit and this is how it went so all the time this was happening unbeknown to myself clearly there wasn't something right in my head okay I wasn't coping and no one really asked me at school anything. We never talked about it. I was scared that anybody would notice. I was pretending it was fine because I didn't want, as I said, I don't want the social services ever hearing anything um, because I would be the one to blame and mom would get into trouble. So one day a school teacher asked me if I was okay and, and I lied, whereas I really wanted that school teacher to protect me and for me to get a hug from him and for me to be able to tell him the truth and him to look after us, but I couldn't. So I call it, you know, that sliding door moment. I lied and said, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm fine. 
and I walked out the door and it just went from bad to worse. So that's how it kind of all kicked off, really. Yeah. That's where it all started to go wrong. So your dad, if you don't mind me asking, your dad survived the attack, it sounds like. He survived the attack, yeah, but and we didn't. We didn't. Oh, but you never saw him? Very rarely, very rarely. Did your mom go to jail? She went to jail on remand, and then she was found not, you know, she was she was admonished of the charges. Okay. So you stayed with her. And yeah. how long did this go on? I mean, it happened at 13. Yeah, well, we were, well, it, it all went on until I was eventually, I became so unwell. Uh, so basically, for the next three years, our life was torment. You know, it was this um, very dysfunctional time. We didn't have a stable environment. It was toxic on every level. I stopped going to school. And the only thing I used to love was swimming, which is something I did in Africa a lot, was swimming and gymnastics so and dancing. So they became my only kind of solace. And for some bizarre reason, I started to feel this, this, this compellingness to exercise a lot. But the original man who woke me up with a tap on the shoulder, he was part of a, a family of Italians that, that lived by us at the time and they asked if I wanted to go to the Italy with them when I was 15 so I was like yeah of course this would be amazing but I didn't have any money but they you know they drove and they took me and I think they felt sorry for me they gave me some some hours in their chip shop that they owned and I think they was just you know trying to help as much as they could so we drove to Italy and I was okay you know I was I thought a normal girl although I had all these issues going on and there was one day on this beach, um, I'll never forget it, I've got a photo actually from the beach and I've got a red swimsuit on and I'm, I'm like nine stone, I don't know how, sorry, what, I don't know what nine stone is in pounds. Oh, I, I, uh. do, I know this from Dungeons and Dragons and I... I... Ah, so it's 14 <laughs> pounds in a stone. Yeah. So I'm, I'm whatever the equivalent of nine times 14 is. Um, so it's... I'm a normal, average, you know, 15-year-old girl, very healthy, didn't have any body concerns. And I turned around this day, and I, was, and I thought I saw this woman kind of indicating my arse was big, right? Now, I don't know, I still think I made this up in my head, because part of anorexia is psychotic. It's a psychotic illness, for me anyway it was. And I think my brain just, something snapped and I literally felt like a physical feeling in my brain. And I felt this urge to run back to the apartment and stick my fingers down my throat for the frosties I just had like that morning. Now, I didn't, I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know where it came from. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know. I just had to do it. So this compulsion kicked in. And every time I ate on that holiday, I had to be sick. And I kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And it was... I was thinking about calories. I didn't know what calories were, my goodness. So when I got back from that holiday, I was um, extremely, like, I was there for a month, but this new way of thinking was my whole world. I ran to the library and I got nutrition books and I started writing out every single thing I ate, working out the calories, the fats, the, the trans. You can imagine, you only had books back then. So trying to work out all the nutrition of what you ate was difficult. And I was a vegetarian, so I was really strict anyway. So it became like this regimented Bible. And then I would run down to this, the city centre every day and start weighing myself on these scales, what I call the holy grail of scales. 
and it gave you like a printout of um, your body fat percentage, so on. And I would keep these slips like every day, like golden tickets, you know. And but it was miles. Like I ran miles every day to get this 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 thing, and it kept me going and motivated until I realized in my head, what what is wrong with you? Like, why are you thinking like this? Um. So I went to the library and I started researching eating eating problems, eating things, and and this book came up saying anorexia and I started reading it and I immediately identified that I had every single thing that this girl had in this book um but the funny thing was she had lost like three stone or something in this book and I thought and all I thought was is that all oh my god I can do this stand on my head you know this is going to be so easy for me this is the easiest and best thing I've ever done I thought it was my new best friend it, it gave me this warmth and protection and control almost um, from all my problems. So it did. It literally became where I stayed. I didn't go to school. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't drink anymore because I had calories in it. But one thing I did realize was when I was getting up at five, I was doing so much exercise and the, like the weight was falling off me all the time. And the more the weight fell more I wore so that no one could see I was losing weight so I was piling on the clothes and my, I was grateful because my period stopped and I was and I was so happy and then my boobs started to disappear and I was even happier and I started to feel this amazing control and power over myself which I've never felt before and then this is this is when I really knew I was sick like really sick because I had a pen friend in Ireland and you guys know what a pen friend is. I don't know if you know. I don't actually. No. Okay. So so we used to we used to have a big magazine here called the Smash Hits, which was like um, I'm just I think it would be like anyways. It was a music magazine. Oh, like Rolling Stone or. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I loved U2 and Madonna. They were my go to sounds, and I used to dance to them or listen to them, and they kept me sane in this little Walkman I had. So anyway, at the back of the magazine, you could write to someone who had the same, you know, same interest as you. And I connected with this girl in Dublin called Sandra, and she went to the same school as the YouTube boys, although she was younger, she was my age. And this was our connection. And then she used to, I obviously, you know how when you're young and you love a band or whatever, I used to love the drummer who was Larry Mullen, okay? And I used to think, oh my God, one day I'm going to marry Larry Mullen, as if that would ever happen. But anyway, she was sending me twigs from his garden, allegedly. And I would get these, these letters <laughs> with these twigs and everything in it. And I thought this was the best thing ever. Um, so anyway, her, and it was interesting because she was really the only person I spoke to. But I didn't speak about anything. It was just this lovely conversation. And I knew she would probably never meet me in real life and I'd never meet her. So... I was able to just communicate with this, this girl. So one day I went up to get a stamp. And when I say went up, I literally ran, hop, skip, jump, you know, everything to get to this post office. And I went to lick the stamp and I, I immediately thought, oh my goodness, what is the substance on the back of this thing? You know, what? How many calories? I can't calorie count this. I don't know what it is. Obviously it's glue, but I never... And then I started to have a real panic about Oh my God, I'd lick the envelope. That must say that's a million calories. That's why I'm still fat. And this was all the kind of strange thoughts that was going through my head. And then I started to really panic when I came out of the post office because I thought, what about 
the calories you really can't control, like in the air, for example. So say there's millions of calories in the air, and I start to pant to try and think that by panting, it would burn off more energy, and the, the oxygen would ca- laden with calories would burn off. I mean, it was ridiculous. And at that moment, I really thought, this is ridiculous. You know, I knew, but I didn't care. I didn't care. I just cared so little about myself that I couldn't have given a shit, but I knew I was deeply unwell. Um, so that was anyway. So I turned 16 in the August, and by the December, I was six stone. So I'd lost the three stone in that short period of time. So that's what, uh, 32 pounds in that short period of time. Um, yeah, that's right. So I I was really not very well, you know, I wasn't keeping well. And then I ended up um, in hospital and ended up being really, really sick. I ended up getting really, really sick where I lost even more weight. And um, I became sectioned under the Mental Health Act into an adult psychiatric unit. And yeah, it was pretty horrendous experience after that. A uh, question on, so you mentioned, so you looked up eating disorders, like before yes. the thing with air and calories and stamps, yeah. like you, yeah. do you remember what caused you to think something was up? Yeah, because I knew, I thought, why am I behaving like this around my eating? Why? You know, it wasn't like me. I didn't know why I was doing it, why I had this compulsion to make myself sick or abuse laxatives I had no idea why or where this had come from and after ignoring it for so long I thought I kind of have to know what's going on because I need to understand it a bit better but once you learned about it Mm -hmm. like you said it's it's interesting if Mm -hmm. you could explain this it became your friend Yeah. yeah rather than you wanting to fix it you embraced it oh yeah I mean it became my only my only solace in life became this condition, this illness, this this monster, as I call it. And it's like, I, I can only, I mean, for example, recently an auntie of someone who's been really sick recently said to me, and this is the best description I've had of it, and it's true. She said her niece had been possessed and she needed to be exorcised, you know, back. That's what it's like. It's like you're taken over and you're pushed out and this new booming voice is in your head and but the the reason you're not scared of it is because you think you're in control of it and you have all you're the one deciding when actually it's not even a it's not even a choice I, ha- I didn't choose that it happened to me yeah I didn't you, you can't choose to be anorexic this afternoon for example it's not it's just not going to happen um it's it's a it's a very complicated uh psychological reason they still don't actually understand the complexities or whys and the wherefores. Mm-hmm. Um, did, did, and way out on a limb here, but mm-hmm. you mentioned when prior to this, you had this long self-destructive pattern yeah. where you were hoping to die. Yeah. Did this have any, did that have anything to do with your embrace of it in a way that you could control the potential trajectory of still hoping to die? Or did you like live for it at that point? Like, how did that play into it? Well, initially, it totally distracted me from the self esteem issues I was having, like this, mm. because it switched my brain to this power. It's like a power you, you gain 
over starvation and it's it's like nothing I've ever felt before or after. I can't even, if you can bottle that, it would be incredible, that that focus and determination to do something. Anything, um, yeah. Anything. But I, I eventually used it for good. But in that moment, I was using it for destruction. But to me at the time, it was the most, it was this me controlling every single thing about my own self. And it was my space and no one could touch it. What did it do? Well, so how did how did it affect your relationship with your sisters? Because I know it that was so, a huge driving mm, factor mm, early, yeah. like into how you behaved. How did it affect that? It cost me all all those relationships. It took them all away. But the interesting thing was, it numbed me emotionally, and that's the sad part. I I became an emotionless person. It stole everything. To you know, I didn't have love for myself or anybody anymore. It was like I was a dead soul. And that's the sad part about often these conditions, for example, anorexia. It's it's like you lose touch and, and cognitively you lose perspective of relationships and the reality. And it's a really complicated um, brain function problem, unfortunately. So, yeah, I, although I cared, it was like I I felt like I my pursuit of this this relentless pursuit almost of starvation way trumped anything else you could imagine. Hmm. You said that it was anorexia was psychotic for you, or you said mm-hmm. it was psychotic and then you corrected that and said psychotic for you. So mm-hmm. is that a thing? So how does that work? How does like, yeah. is it psychosis? Is that the right way yeah, to say yeah, it? Is that, yeah. How does that work with anorexia? So for example, I imagine I, my brain was making up situations like that one. So there was another time when I was in hospital, I was, I imagined that, well, for me, it was real, but, and it wasn't, the nurses didn't see it, but like, I thought I saw something coming down um, from the ceiling to hurt me and things like Mm -hmm. that. Now, they were telling me it wasn't there, but I could see it with my own Mm -hmm. eyes, you know. So you could see it with your own eyes and hear them (laughs) saying it's not real. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, 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 no. And then they would say to me, it's all part of an illness. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's, yeah. it's, it's, I can see it. My goodness, you know. And it's, so this is, this is what the, now, the reason I say for me is because every journey, it's like the flu, right? When you have the flu, Rodney and Keith, you know, you both have the flu, but you both feel differently. You know, yeah. you may have a stuffy nose and he may not. So it's, yeah. everybody's journey is different. Although often there's a linear path in the middle the same things are happening the whole experience could be very different and some may experience things that others don't so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's very is, unique is psychosis a common um side effect or a product of like of anorexia is it uncommon i mean i i had never it's, it's this is great education i had never known that uh that was even studying psychology i didn't even oh, know right. that was okay yeah. well interesting actually because when i i didn't know anything about it when i was experiencing sure. it but what happened was i um i eventually became well or i, I was a uh, weight weight restored and and they deemed me as kind of, I don't need to be in a psychiatric unit anymore, albeit almost four years uh, in and out. Um, so by the time I was 20, I was ready for the big by, by, bad world. And they put me into um, a rehab unit because I couldn't go anywhere. I had no home to go to and things like that. So 
um, I thought, you know, I started then going to the library again where I knew and I started to understand, I wanted to understand what, why had my brain just chosen for me to almost kill me, right? So because also part of the starvation was suicidal. I mean, I, you know, desperately tried to end my life, right? Every day. I literally didn't want to live every day. And I tried twice to do terrifying things to myself and I was, was stopped. So I wanted to know why. Like, why? Why? What, what, why was I so bad at my brain? So what I did was I went back to where I knew I could get the information. It was a library. And I would read all the books, all the psychology books. And I mean, bibliotherapy is an amazing thing, if you ask me. And I came across... Um, Lots and lots of things. But one of the most incredible things that, that twigged something in my head was Abraham Ma uh, Maslow's um, Hierarchy of Needs. Now, yeah. we've all seen it, but it all made sense. As soon as I saw that and understood the way he was thinking and what he was trying to say, it all clicked in my head. It made sense. Of course, I wasn't advancing as a human being on any level because none of my basic mm -hmm. needs were being met, blah, blah, blah. So this is what happened. This really, really helped me. And then what happened was I eventually didn't need therapy. I turned all my negative energy into huge positive energy. I started doing things I never thought I would achieve. For example, um, my dad by this point was back in our life. He was actually doing really well successfully. He had this business, a pub and a club. We were getting big bands like Biffy Clyro and Snow Patrol coming into play. I wanted to be a fast jet pilot. I went into the RAF careers office and walked in this day and said, excuse me, I want to be a Harrier jump jet pilot. And they pretty much laughed me at the door, right? I had no education and I, I was a woman. So they were like, uh, ha ha ha, see ya. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to be a commercial pilot. So my dad got me a loan through the business. I got my private pilot's license here at, uh, at Tayside Aviation. But what was interesting there was it was all men. It was all guys that was, that was flying. I hadn't had any close bond relationships by this point. I'd been, you know, kind of away for a long time. So it was this whole new passion. I wasn't smoking. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't, I was being very healthy. I wasn't on medication. I wasn't a therapy. But I didn't want to tell anybody. I was too embarrassed by what, what I had been through and what, what people assumed about mental illness. But I became very competitive. You know, this comp competition I had with myself then switched to other things. So I tried to beat them at the landings. I tried to do the best of this, the best of that. I wanted to get... So it was a real competition, but in a good way. You know, I became great friends and then um, applied to be a commercial pilot. And in fact, I was, I was enrolled in a Kansas State University in Salina. Hmm. So that was that. I was all set to do my commercial pilot license. I joined the Territorial Army because I couldn't join the, the, the Army because of my medical. I joined the Territorial. I won the top awards for that. So everything became this, this amazing, oh my God, I can do these things. So every day I did something. It built up and built up my self-esteem and my confidence and all about, wow, why? Why did I think I could do these things, you know? So this is the way it went. And then um, I fell in love and I met my my now husband. One Christmas day, this man walked in the pub, our pub I was working, and 
it was an instant love at first sight for both of us actually and uh, so I'm really lucky so everything seemed to be going amazing right and he played um, he played ice hockey actually and we started dating and going out and he would take me to his ice hockey games and I started to feel now I thought my life was pretty okay at this point right I was okay I was happy healthy I was um, back to my original weight. Everything seemed fine. How old How old were you when you so met your husband? So I was in husband? my early 20s, so like 22, okay. 23. This was all going on at this time. Okay. And then I started to get this really strange sensation, like mm. in my stomach, like this anxiety feeling. I started to get intrusive thoughts. These these thoughts started popping in my head. And I started to feel a real, um, like a light started to bother me light i would go into a, a dark room and say wow this is really bright i go to the ice rink and the lights in the ice arena i would be sitting like oh my god i need my sunglasses what's going on and i, I just started to feel strange so this went on for a few weeks and my sister lived at the top of this building um top floor flat of this building in dundee here and i went up to see her one day and I was sitting and I felt as if there was an invisible bungee cord wrapped around my waist and it was pulling me to ping me out of her, her top floor window. It was this horrible, horrible sensation that I had no control over. I didn't want to go out the window. I was really happy, but I had no choice. It was literally like it was about to happen to me against my own will. So I was so terrified, I kind of started grabbing onto the chairs and everything and ran down the stairs, jumped in my car and drove myself to um, the local kind of psychiatric hospital that's here. And I ran in and I thought, I'm actually, I'm about to go insane or something. I don't know what's happening in my brain. I ran in, I said, please help me. This is my name, my date of birth. This is my dad's name. This is his number. Because I thought... I don't know what I thought. I thought my head was awake. I didn't know what was happening. And I was so scared. And all these horrible thoughts and words and feelings. And um, So anyway, they quickly sat me down. They talked to me. They figured it. They knew from notes and things who I was. They gave me some medication. I was pretty much asleep for two days. Mm. Um, and I came to and um, I was in the psychiatric hospital. And it was really good when I woke up because I knew I was alive I didn't know if I was going to be ever alive again like I didn't know and anyway it turned out I had a proper that had been a proper psychotic episode hmm. I didn't know what psychosis was until that moment they told me and they told me it was all linked to the trauma um, back in the back that was still unresolved that even though I'd had therapy for many years they said it was part of that and they also told me that I didn't know this either, that there was a massive link between um, like that happening, anorexia, and then a psychotic episode or overlapping because the complexities of these illnesses is a lot of them do overlap. You know, it's depression, OCD, they're all in yeah. there. Like you can't mm -hmm. say this, that, and that. So that's why when you ask, I know it's very low and convoluted, but that was psychosis on its own. And but my thoughts, my rational thoughts, whilst I had control, were also psychotic because they weren't, they were abnormal thoughts for me. So it's not necessarily that anorexia is or causes or is paired with psychosis for anybody. No, you, no. you had 
you've, had, you've had both. You had yeah. psychosis that's what and I'm saying. anorexia. That's so what it's, I'm saying. Yeah, it's yeah, a bespoke. Yeah. It's a bespoke. Everybody's experience is very different, yeah. and that's yeah. the problem. It's and the potential overlap the of yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mean, even the we don't even understand the functioning brain completely. No, no, like, no. like <laughs> <laughs> we don't. Um, did uh, so? It's you're really, really. You've obviously told your story a lot, mm-hmm. and you're really comfortable telling your story. But you said a couple of things within there. One, you, you know, kind of going back to that idea of like almost falling in love with it, right? You embraced mm-hmm. it; it became mm-hmm. your best friend. And it took four years in and out of a hospital, mm-hmm. like. And oh, and you were you were you were embarrassed by it. You didn't yeah. want to talk about it. You did, yeah. and and that contributes to the perpetuating of the stigma and people not becoming well because one, you know, how does someone get through to someone? Like, what? How do you start to say? something's happening but i can't tell you like you said i can't come to you and say no mm-hmm. you're sick you're that's why you're not eating because that's not the way you're processing it in the same way the nurses tell you nope, it's part of your illness there's nothing coming from the ceiling but that's your reality and it's true so how do you do that like how well, does how do people get i want to add something help add get, something yeah. in there because as you said yeah. that the other thing i wrote down was you called it you said you said this monster as i call it and yeah. as Keith is saying that, like, you, you embraced it. I, I had a picture of a little girl or a teenager hugging a monster. Like, mm-hmm. you kind of made it your friend. And it's like, yeah. if somebody's calling your friend bad, mm-hmm. like, you're, like, you're not going to hear them necessarily. Like, no, how- no. And this is the thing. Like, there, there's a lot of work around, because a lot of people describe anorexia as, as an, like, to, it is your, it's, it's your subconscious. It is, it's a... Your brain, as you said, it's a very complex thing, your brain, right? So it goes up, not just from thoughts, it goes into your behavior, into your subconscious mind, and it's a habitual behavior that's deeply ingrained, and a lot of it is in there. And you know yourself, especially if you've done psychology, it's an addiction. It's, It's one of those things you cannot just snap out of. You cannot just make it go away one afternoon, you know, like you can't just drop into it. And also takes a lot of unraveling and therapy to get out of it again but so there's this there's this like almost two people to make it in a simple way it's like two people's in your head one's good and one's bad but at the time you think because it's this almost so powerful being that and it's given you all this things you've never had before which is this control or this power to ignore all that food and not be weak and you know, to to never give in. And this is not the person that you've ever been before, potentially, or a situation you've been in before. So it's like you latch onto it for protection and use it as a control for protecting your emotions. But actually, it's a, a bloody, horrible, evil thing, monster that's killing you. I mean, it, it is literally killing you. It's not your friend in reality. But at the time, you don't see it as a monster, especially when it's you know, got you in its grips and it's it's got you sucked right into the core because that's all you are is, is that. So they're doing this therapy now where they're trying to say, should you separate that person and see anorexia on his own, give it a name, you know, have it, or is she saying this today or is he saying this today? But a lot of psychologists say, no, you can't 
because then you're given it an excuse to behave on its own. So it's, a, it's an interesting point you make there because they're still doing work on that very thing. Do you identify it as a different body or do you keep it all as one and, and, and not enable it? Actually take responsibility and own it. Or, you know, so this is a, because it's so complicated. You know yourself, it's, it's not, you know, this is going to fix everything. I mean, you know, I got um, the Lancet, you know, do you know what the Lancet is? It's like a medical no. journal. It's one of the biggest medical journals here. They oh, did a, the Lancer. Yeah, the Lancet, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So they did a review of my book, for example, and even them, they've said, you know, they can't, they still don't know why, the reasons why these things happen and mm -hmm. how to get, I mean, there is evidence-based research, but not everybody also responds or reacts to the same thing either. Right. Unfortunately. Right. You know? So how do you, like, if someone, you know, in your life cares about you mm -hmm. and you are refusing, I mean, I, I shouldn't even say refusing, like your reality is different from the reality that they're perceiving, but you're on the verge of death and yeah. they are not, and they don't want you to die. Yeah. How, like, what are, what are ways, I mean, and every individual is different, like you said, but what are ways to to get to that point before the ultimate conclusion actually yeah. occurs without having ever been able to get help. You say ultimate conclusion, do you mean like actually death? Yes. Yeah. Or, so they, or even hospital. Yeah. yeah. No, well, that's just, what I said yeah. at the beginning. I think the whole point of what I do is to mitigate that moment because yeah. early intervention for any illness is the key, right? It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if it's, if it's a tonsillitis or, or cancer, whatever it is, if you get things seen at the earliest stage, you've got a better chance of, of fixing it or a recovery. So it's exactly the same with anorexia. Although they will hide it and try and protect it, you need to be firm enough and don't allow, like a lot of people, they'll maybe start kicking out and treating you badly or turning it into someone else to your parents and then the parents back off and say, oh, just leave them, just... But that's what you want. That's because then you've got space to take control. So the more you stand in the way and the more you push and the more you do this, then the more likely you are to get it. There's evidence to prove that if you do it within two to the first two years, there's a higher chance that it can be recovered from fully. So that's a good, that's a very good inning. So if you can try and get it within the very beginning stages, once like it's when... ingrained, it's difficult. Like when you first noticed mm -hmm. something was wrong, had yeah. you had someone say, yes, this is, we need to yeah. work on this versus you having the control to actually exactly. embrace it as your friend that could have. And then exactly. once you, once you've embraced it as your friend, it, it becomes a, an impossibly difficult task yeah. without yeah. years of instant, yeah. you know, instant. And right. I didn't that's have, good. I didn't, I also didn't have right. family supporting me at that right. time. So that was. To me, and my, and they weren't allowed to even come and visit me. This, this was part of the program to oh, keep me alive. But I thought they were just leaving me to die anyway in my, my not thinking brain because I wasn't functioning. I was malnutritious, uh, malnourished. So in my functioning brain, I wasn't, I wasn't rational. So I thought, no one, gives a, no one cares about me. I'm here to die. So, you know, bring it on. And I'm ready for this to happen. I have no feelings. I'm not caring about any of this. So if I, had, if I had had a loving, supportive family that I knew cared and friends and family of people, I might have felt a very different experience. Mm. I, I was thinking about the fact that you didn't have any family and the, the risk for 
for children that don't have a support structure like that they're there's such risk um because there's nobody to grab yeah. them in that first year or two to like right. had that had that teacher yeah that's right notice something not that it's his fault but no, had no, he no. well no I mean, at that point you were protecting bit. your siblings which yeah. was a yeah. noble thing but it obviously you know yeah. it kept them out yeah but that's uh, why if you heard of um dr bark from the states who does the aces the early child, so it's the adverse childhood experiences, it's ACEs it's called. She's actually just been to talk in Glasgow and it's it's all based about um, childhood trauma and if you tick all these, like I think they have like um, factors, if you tick these boxes, if you have more than so many ACEs, the scores, you're more than likely to have a, a problem with your mental health, mental illness. So it's, it's fixing that in the beginning and a lot of kids, you know, across the world and in areas where they're not going to have support or families at home looking after them you know my my story unfortunately is not unique you know there's there's people way worse off than me i'm one of the lucky ones so i i mean i can imagine how even harder it's going to be if there's really if there's not a soul and they don't get help at all and especially in america i mean i know that if, if i've been told by american people that if i had had the stays in hospital i would have bankrupt a family because mm-hmm. we here have the NHS and, and I was able to stay without worrying about treatment. Whereas you guys in America, you know, psychiatric care, I'm not sure how it works, but as I know it's not as easy as it is here. So there's lots of problems. And going back to the teachers, I do a lot of work in schools because teachers see kids every single day and they can often see problems. So they can help or guide them to a counsellor or maybe give them a bit of support. Potentially that could help too. So, But the ACEs work that Dr. Burke and her team are doing is fascinating. This is. Uh, I'm, I'm looking yeah. it up right yes. now. Dr. Nadine, Nadine, Nadine yeah. Burke-Harris. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Amazing team. Got it. Now, mm-hmm. do, have you, so do you have a relationship with your siblings today? Yes, we do. We have relationships. Um, it's not been easy, not between us, but they've all had issues, their own problems to deal with. Mm. Um, and some of them actually around food and um, not, not so much food, but as in self-esteem issues and their body confidence issues. Um, but they're over those now. So there's only one out of four that's kind of still having some problems, but the other ones are, are happy and healthy. And that's the main thing. And you all have good, solid relationship now. Yeah, well, we're all living in different parts of the world, so it's difficult. Oh, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you yeah. keep in touch. Yeah, we keep in touch. Yeah. And have you had any other episodes since no. the the waistband? No. No, but let me tell you. So I, I, this is what I think is an important thing to explain. So yeah. I was anorexic, okay, and then I became weight restored, and everybody assumes that once, this is what I said at the beginning, eating disorders are not just about super skinny or things like that. Right. I had an eating disorder. I had a disordered ability to deal with food and con- consuming of it, and, and my way of, my, everything I worked in my head was still around the calories, and my behavior was very much a controlled behavior. So, for example... Um, although I, I was back to my normal weight, I was still going to the gym every day for two, three hours. I still had this, this perfectionist about me that had to get up at five, 
um, once I had the kids, you know, I had to be get up at five in the morning, get them in the swimming pool at six a.m., make sure the house is immaculate, go and run the business, be the best mom, be the best, 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 best. This this whole regimented perfection thing was ridiculous. Like the kids weren't allowed any junk food. It was all you know, all super healthy food, all organic. You know, had to be, had to be. It was this. And I thought this is what happened, right? This is what society was putting on my head. I I blamed it on the fact I didn't know much. I didn't because I'd missed this this learning gap. I thought I need to read these books and understand, and they're going to guide me to be the best mom. I don't want to fail them or be a terrible wife. So I felt this pressure. So this is the way I went on until about twelve years ago, maybe thirteen years ago, and I was so exhausted but on the outside everybody thought she's got it together right she's got my god how does she fit it all in how does she do it all blah 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 she, you know but actually I was I was so exhausted because I didn't have any time like everything was so regimented and blocked so one day I'd seen an advert for strawberry shortcake hag and dance ice cream I would never have allowed myself to eat like all these scoops of ice cream or real coke and things like that so I thought you know what I've had it so I went and bought this tub of this ice cream and I literally ate the whole thing. I thought, fuck it. Sorry for this <laughs> curse. Nope. Um, and I thought, you know what? Fuck it. I've had enough. So what if I bloody get some weight on my boat? So what? Who gives a shit? I'm happy. You know, I've come through all this. I'm not a bad person. I think I'm actually okay. And I ate this and I've never looked back since, actually. It's a... It's been such a liberating experience. Um, yeah, so since that moment, I would honestly say I've been completely fine. I would say I've been recovered since that time. Um, and now, yeah, I eat what I want. I don't have a problem with food. I don't think about numbers all the time. My kids can do what they want. They're happy. They're all healthy. My husband and I are happy and healthy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm in a good place. I know I've not had anything for many years now so do you do you do you still see a therapist now no i've not seen a therapist since uh since i was in my 20s okay. mm. but you know what's one of the best sayings i've if you've ever heard of darren brown dan brown no. dan darren, darren. Brown. No. so he's um he's like a psych he's like a psychological magician i can't even explain but he's massive but I went to see him. Oh, he's years. a mentalist. Yes, he's oh. amazing. He's a ah. very smart man, very smart man. And he says you'll care what others, you'll care less about what others think of you when you realize how seldom they do. And I think hmm. this is one of the best sayings I've ever said to the kids when I go to school. It's not that people don't care; they love you and support you, but they don't dwell on what you dwell on. Like it's information to me about you. I worry about it, but I'm not going to dwell on every second of the day it reminds me of the 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 motivational idea that you will be successful only when you realize when you, you care about your success more, more than, than anybody in the room yeah exactly ah, yeah. Okay, because okay. nobody else cares about your success, success right <laughs> like nobody nobody can possibly care about your success as much as you do yeah, yeah. or don't yeah. Or, or don't yeah um, but this is the thing so many people get hung up on what other people think of like this preconceived idea that's what I said at the beginning you know people when I asked you asked me what I say to kids in schools and this is the question what what do you think people think of you and what you think people think of you like there's the two very different things and that saying nails it on the head pretty much 
it's always very different. So at what point in there did, did you write the book since you bring that up? That's great. So I, I, as I said, I didn't tell anybody about what I'd been through for years. Um, and then I thought the most important people I need to tell really is my children because I don't want them viewing people with any kind of psychological problems or seeing mental illness as something to be scared of or, you know, having any stigma associated with it. So as soon as they were old enough, I, I sat them down and said, look, and I was really nervous, actually, to be honest, because I was scared that they might look at me in a different way or whatever. It might affect their love for me, which was the worst thing that could happen. But of course, you know, un unconditional love come. They didn't give a shit. You know, they were like, yeah, mom, you know, that's great. We love you all the same because they really didn't understand the complexities of it. But my... They, they did say, you should really write about this, actually, because oh, this they could encouraged help. You they encouraged me. They told me I should write about it um, because they said this story could help other people. Mom, look at what you would have. You would have maybe needed help sooner if you had read this and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, no, maybe you're right. And there was a moment, actually, where um, I tried to end my life when I was in the hospital. Um, and I remember coming through that and thinking, no young person should be standing in a in a horrible grey toilet about to end their life like this there must be more to the world and I remember coming through thinking if I ever make this if I ever get through this one day I may share this story to to show kids out there that, that you know there is more to life so as soon as they gave me that idea and as soon as I thought they were old enough you yeah. You alluded, so you just told us about an, a suicide attempt, and then I think there was one more. I think you mentioned there were two. Mm -hmm. um, what? So, like, what, what are your thoughts around helping people that may be thinking about um, ending their lives about suicide, or um, if you notice somebody that, is down like how 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 would you approach having been in that situation multiple mm -hmm. times? How would yeah. you approach uh, a person there? Well, I know you had Kwame on, and he was speaking about this, and I know that there's an amazing TED talk. Well, there's two actually that um, that I I've watched, and one of them is the patrol officer on the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge, and he talks about the people he's tried to save and people on the bridge that haven't been able to be saved and there's a young man who jumped kevin off briggs the okay yeah that's yeah. him and there's a young man who actually jumped off the bridge and he said the moment his hand left the rail he regretted it so it's a really it's not an easy subject to talk about although i do talk about it because it's one of those again that people are scared to ask the question in case it pushes someone to do something but it's been proven that there's no, you, by talking about it, it's not going to push someone to do it. It's going to maybe open up that conversation. But I know that from what I do now, the, the conversations I have, that just being there for that person, just for that, that vulnerable moment, even if you just give them an extra five minutes, it may potentially take the edge off. But also what I think is important, I had choices in those two very brutal moments that I had, okay? I, I knew exactly what I was going to do and I was determined to do those two things, okay? Nothing would have stopped me doing those two things. However, 
when I had that psychosis, I didn't want to do that. That was like it was take that choice was taken from me. So this was my worry that sometimes people don't appreciate that um, it's not always you choosing to do that. If you have psychosis, it's happening to you. You it's, it feels like you're not choosing it. So someone might do it even though they don't feel they want to do it. Like I didn't know I don't want to do it. But if I didn't have the, 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 the information to run out and go up to the psychiatric hospital, God forbid what would have happened, you know. So I think it's really it's really tricky. It's not all one size fits all either. Mm-hmm. But I do know that from what Kevin Briggs talks about, as soon as you can talk to someone, even just for 5, 10, 15 minutes, it make, can make all the difference. He's not going to save everybody on that bridge. I mean, he talks about people flying... They buy a one-way ticket to come and to fly into that bridge to, to, to end their life. But he hopes that all these patrol officers there and the methods they've got in place now are going to stop that from happening as much I, as they can. Really interesting point. I understand. I don't even know if it's interesting as much as it is enlightening around the idea of not everybody who does or attempts really may want to because you don't know exactly what they're going through um, in the, in the, the power of the mind. So, um, so we're, we're coming up on time, you know, and first I want to say thank you for openly sharing your story in general, not just here, um, and having this conversation with us, letting us ask some questions and, uh, dig a little bit deeper or as deep as we can. Um, one question we always ask our guests at the end, if there was one thing that you could leave our audience with, um, what would that one thing be? Um, I think what's important, I mean, this is called more in common, isn't it? And we do have humans, we have more in common than what divides us. And I think that's important that no matter where you are in the world, who you are, what what you're doing, you know, be kind. And I think that is, I think kindness goes a long way and giving people just time and you know empathy and just that's the basic human things and we all want the same thing at the end of the day humans live and breathe all want the same we want to be safe secure fed and watered and happy and i think if we can just treat each other like that then you know that's the the best thing i've ever been treated with is is kindness and to help as much like you were saying about Brittany and Brescia with ending the stigma. And, you know, all these people you've spoken to, they are all here now giving something because they believe and it's touched them in some way. And I believe that you could really help others with what you've been through and what you can, you know, you can share your experiences because there's nothing more powerful than starting those conversations and it can really make a change in someone's life. 